0: Our scripture passage this evening is First Timothy three fourteen through sixteen. First Timothy three fourteen through sixteen, and we will also be looking at the Belgic Confession articles eighteen and nineteen. This can be found in your Forms and Prayers book, beginning on page one seventy one. are many passages we could have turned to, thinking of the doctrine of the incarnation. So many, in fact, that it becomes difficult to select simply one, but I've chosen this text from Timothy as it describes this mystery of the church and the pillar and buttress that we hold to is the incarnation of Christ himself. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us understanding as we open your word to read it and as we consider in a more formal and theological way the doctrine of the incarnation of of you coming in the flesh to your people. Give us understanding. May we see to the best of our extent and the ability of our frail minds what has been accomplished in your efforts to adopt us as your children. We thank you for the great privilege it is to open your word we ask that we would treat it with respect, and we ask that you would give to us bountifully through it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Again, I reference this text particularly for what it says. Great indeed, we we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And it proceeds on to explain what that means. So that is the verse we will think of today, that it was God himself who was manifest in the flesh. This is that great mystery that the church holds to. And now we turn to the Belgic Confession, Articles 18 and 19, as it summarizes all of what God's Word has to say about the Incarnation and about the two natures of Christ. Belgic Confession, Article 18. So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which He had made to the earthly fathers by the mouth of His holy prophets when He sent His only and eternal Son into the world at the time set by Him. The Son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without malparticipation. And he not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul, in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. Therefore we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, that he is fruit. Of the loins of David according to the flesh, born of the seed of David according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham, for he assumed Abraham's seed, and was made like his brothers except for sin. In this way he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God. With us, Just a brief comment before we read Article 19. You see in that end paragraph and section there of the Belgic, all of those references, and you can even see the citations and the verses that are, are given in support of it. But it's all these things that point to his very real humanity descending from these very real humans, these people, that he is the descendant and culmination of these covenant lines. So it points very clearly to his descent and his human flesh. Now we turn to Article 19, The Two Natures of Christ. We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature, in such a way that there are not two sons of God nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus, his divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has a beginning of days. It is of a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. our salvation and resurrection depend also on the reality of his body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then what he committed to his father when he died was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave, and his deity never ceased to be in him just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. People of God, though at times technical, our creeds and confessions provide us great truth. They provide us a great place to stand. It is amazing to think with what precision we can speak of these things, to know that this was not always the case. And what I want you to keep in your minds tonight, my my main goal this evening is really that we would understand what we confess. That we would understand what we confess. We gather every week, every Sunday evening, we profess our faith. We are giving the definition of our faith, what we believe, what's the content of our faith, what are we confessing faith in. And we use those creeds, we use the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian creeds, and they have very technical language in them, very precise. Why? Why is that? Why do we have this precision of language? Because what we're talking about matters. I wonder if you've ever had the, uh, the privilege, it may not seem like a privilege at the time, of entering into two people arguing. Usually we don't look at it as a privilege, but a nuisance. But bear with me, if you have ever had that opportunity where two people are arguing about something and you, you sort of step into it, and you start hearing what they're arguing about, and as you listen to it, you, you're trying to determine, well, what are they saying, What are they arguing? What's this language? And if it's a topic that you're not too familiar with, you'll hear a lot of phrases and words, and you think, boy, I'm lost. I don't know what they're saying. That's a little bit like what it is to to read the Belgian Confession Articles 18 and 19. You see, there's a lot going on. There's a, a lot of history. There's a lot of reasons for this precision of language. There's a lot of reason for the choices that they make. There is so much behind what we confess, even in the creed we did this evening, the Athanasian creed. All of those particulars, it's not this, but this. It's not that, it's this. All of these nuances and explanations. And so, entering into this debate here, we can sort of think to ourselves, I'm not fully understanding everything that's being said. I've also, I also wonder if you had this experience, too, when you encounter two people arguing, and that's sort of going on in your mind. And you might think to yourself, boy, these people are taking this real seriously, and, and it's not that complex. Have you ever had that where you kind of enter it, and you're listening to it and thinking, boy, I, th- this is really simple, and the answer's X. And then as you listen and continue to hear it, you start questioning, well, oh, I didn't know that, or I didn't understand that. And then as the course of the time goes on, you start realizing maybe it isn't as simple as what I thought. And that's also what's going on here as well. You see, we are church people, most of us. Many of us grew up in the church, not all, but many of us did. Many of us came to faith later in life, but still has been exposed to this for a long time. And even if you're new to it, you come to what we confess as our beliefs with certain amount of questions. And though we have heard this language so often, we still need to ex- examine ourselves to see, do I know what I confess? Do I understand what I believe about our Saviour? We have these sort of phrases in what we confess, of the same substance as the Father. What do we mean? You can look at what we just read in the Athanasian Creed, how how it's describing how Christ is divine and how he is human, and yet how these don't confuse themselves, how they are left fully. Even phrases that he's equal to Father as his divinity, but subservient to the Father in his humanity. There's a reason for what we say. There's a precision of words. And what's quite amazing is what happens with time. You see, because we've been sort of inundated with these words, we came to accept them and we hear them and we hear them defined and they sound right to us and good to us and we fail to realize just how many years and years it took the church, took our ancestors in the faith to hammer this out. And when I say hammer it out, I don't mean that they created a doctrine I mean, it took years and years to formalize what we have before us in our creeds and confessions as an explanation of what the Bible truly teaches. As it was in response to heresies and false teachings, all these things had to be carefully defined. And so we have a great privilege today to be able to speak with a great amount of precision and accuracy, though we cannot understand fully what we talk about. The Belgic is trying to confess clearly that we believe the Son of God took to himself a human nature and that Jesus Christ is thus fully God and fully man with a divine nature. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation, which is really the act of uniting human nature with the eternal Word of God. It is the event when the Eternal Son took upon himself a human nature. Now I say that, and we don't bat an eye at it. But if we go back to the 4th century, if we go back to... 325, when the church had their first council to discuss these things, well, we'd be quite surprised with the debates that raged. We stand on years and years of faith, of faithful Christians, and we are able then to say, yes, that's right. That's not something that was always just as clear. It is clearly taught in God's word, but wasn't presented to the church in this way, and there was a lot of false teachings so we accept as simple truth what was far from simple in that day. It would be as if you inserted yourself into that argument. If you could go to those early church councils, you would think, well, yeah, of course we know that. We've known that for a long time. But as you would listen, you would think, wow, I didn't realize how complex it was to come to this point. So we'll look at first the historical development of what we believe. The first council was in 325, first council of Nicaea. That's where the church gathered and it first affirmed as in a formal position that the Son of God was of the same substance with the Father. We are very familiar with that phrase, but it was that phrase that was combating a gross heresy called Arianism, a heresy that taught that Christ was created, that there was a time when Christ was not, or the Son of God was not, that he was less than the Father, which destroyed his divinity. And as our confession makes plain, if Christ is not divine, if the Son of God were not divine, he cannot bear the weight of sin. And so he would lose the gospel. This was very important. And what they came to say was that, no, the Son of God is not of a different substance with the Father. What that meant is that He wasn't less than the Father. He wasn't a created being. All that the Father is, all that God is in His divinity, the Son is of that same substance. That was a profound statement, and it separated the church You see, after it was formulated there in 325, which, by the way, was the first form of the Nicene Creed, we confess, just as an aside, when we confess the Nicene Creed, it's it's going back all the way to 325, just hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That's when this was first being clarified and determined but anyways, after they first confessed that in 325, shortly after that, the position that, that the Son of God was less than the Father became the norm in the church. St. Athanasius, which is the creed we confessed is named after him, Athanasius, he taught the true and orthodox teaching that the Son was of the same substance as the Father. He was banished multiple times. He had many battles to face, threats against his life, because he fought for that truth. And so it wasn't until the next council of Constantinople in 381 which reaffirmed the council of Nicaea's decision that the Son of God was of the same substance with the Father. And it also dealt with a different heresy known as Apollinarianism. Now, you hear those words? Don't become sidetracked with the the oddness of the word itself. What this taught was that Christ had a human body and soul, but his spirit was replaced by the Son of God, the Word, now hear that and wonder what you think. Does that register as a problem? That he may have had this human body, but the spirit was not a human spirit. There's a phrase in the Belgic that we read that he assumed the spirit because he needed to save it all together. If it wasn't taken up, it wouldn't be saved. If he didn't have a true human spirit, he was not a true human. If he was not a true human then he could not save us. It takes a true human descended from the humans to save humans. And so if you taught such a teaching, taught this, that no, there was a replacement of his spirit with the divine, well, we've lost our salvation yet again. Yes, it's technical, but it's necessary. And so they fought against it in Constantinople in 381 and established the the fact that it is not that Christ took to himself, the Son of God took to himself, a complete human nature, body and soul, body and spirit. Well, it was just a few years later in 431 at the Council of Ephesus where there was another heresy, Nestorianism. What is this? This basically emphasized the two natures, the divine and human nature of Christ, in such a way where there was no union between the two. So what this would result in is basically two separate persons or something like a schizophrenic Christ. That he was sort of at times this divine figure and then at times he was this human figure and you ended up with two kind of individuals and this is how it was being formed. Well, what are the problems with that? Well, the problem is that if there is no true union, then we we don't have a true mediator. We don't have a true Savior. We needed a union of the two natures in a person, in the Son of God. And if they were distinct, we had no true union. We had no God-man. Thus, we had no true Savior. When you think of it this way, that... That Jesus was sort of just this this receptacle of the divine. We don't have that true person we see in God's word, the Son. Fully God and fully man. Well, as we're continuing very briefly, this is a long set of history, and I'm not going to bore you with all the details. We're just getting at the important points of this. But as you can imagine, if that heresy was one that over-separated the natures of Christ, what would follow? A heresy that would over-unionize them. This was the next heresy. It was taught by those, and I actually think these names are fun. You probably don't, but Eutychianism or Monophysites taught this. That's a good word. Boys and girls remember that and say, I don't know, you sound like a Eutychian. I'm not actually saying to, to do that, but these, these words, this, this heresy, what it ended up doing was take took the divine nature and the human nature and merged them, and so merged them that one of the natures lost its properties. You see, what our confessions and our creeds clearly say is that Jesus had a divine and human nature, but they did not merge and mix and create this new type of nature. The big word that we're saying for this, monophysites, that comes from the Greek word one, only, mono, one, phusis, nature, one, nature. So what's happened is you've taken the divine and human and you've made a new. Well, that's not salvation. What would happen when you do that is the divine swallows up the human. You don't really have a human anymore. You have this creature who's not quite God, not quite man, but a sort of mix of the two, and that's the problem. We needed a full God, a full man to save us. That's what Christ was. And so they overblended the nature. So here's what I want us to see, having just briefly gone through those councils and these heresies. We have all these things that need to be figured out. It's quite something to say that God became man, isn't it? We're so used to it, it doesn't sound odd, but think of that. Divine, infinite, became finite. You see, others would argue against us and say, you guys are fools for believing that. That's a total contradiction. It's this precision of language that helps us see there is no contradiction here, but a true faith. A true biblical faith. So this is what I want us to see. These are the type of questions you have. Is the Son of God equal to God? Was he created? That's the Arian heresy, and we know that's false. If so, if the Son of God was equal to God, well then how could he become man? Wouldn't this divine nature swallow up some of his human nature? Well, that's Apollinarianism. Let's reject his full humanity. Well, then we could say if he has two natures, how can a divine and human nature both be present in one man? Does it create two men or sort of a schizophrenic-type individual? Well, no, that's Nestorianism. Does it create one new nature that is human and divine? Well, no, that's Monophysitism or Eutychianism. And if so, how can that work? If you join these natures, did he merely seem to be a human or was he a true human? That would be to deny his human nature, which is wrong. So the Belgic answers all these things in these articles, showing first that Jesus was fully human through Mary, but not sinful, being the seed of the woman, not of the normal, ordinary procreation of man, which was to say that he did not descend in the ordinary way and thus receive sin. He received his human nature from Mary, and the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and thus we have a divine and human Savior. So that's the historical background. Now we look at what we confess. Having said all that, I want to read something. I want to read what we actually believe. And I want us to appreciate the precision in which we can say this. This is the statements of what we believe. We confess that Jesus has two natures, fully God, fully man, having been inseparably united, which did not create two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. I don't expect you all to follow that when you're not reading it. I want to say that so you hear the precision of the language to say, no, we're able to define it. We're able to say both retained their true properties in their natures, but they were united in one individual and one man. So no cross-pollution of the natures, And yet, both natures present in the one true God. Well, why does that matter? Even though it might sound to us like a bunch of distinctions, this gets at the heart of the gospel, as we already said. If you mess with God's or Christ's natures, you mess with salvation. You lose the gospel. All of God's word and our creeds and confessions make plain. Even the end of the, I closed the book, even the end of the Athanasian Creed, what did it say? This is the Catholic faith, that one cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. These things matter. Without this understanding, there is no salvation. Now here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that we all need to fully comprehend all the ins and outs of it for us to be saved. But, if we believe something that denies these things then we have lost our salvation. you understand that distinction? Again, I'm not saying that we all need to so understand it that we can explain it perfectly. As laudable and as much as I would hope we could, that's not what salvation is. This is providing us the parameters of what is true faith. And so if you believe something that doesn't accord with what you find here, you do lose salvation itself. These are the fundamentals of the faith. So this really does matter. This is a big deal. Unless we understand this, we will be confused when we read through the Gospels. How many of you have had these questions before? Jesus is divine, all-knowing, right? And yet there are the passages in God's Word that says He doesn't know the time or the hour of the second coming. Jesus is the Son of God. What is crucial to divinity Eternality, you can't, the Son of God, God can't die. And yet, in the very same breath, God died on the cross. Can we say that? You see how we have all these contradictions or seeming contradictions? Divinity could weep. Can that be the case? How do we answer these things? This precision of language allows us to say something like this, though we cannot explain it fully. Jesus is able to show and has shown ignorance in the Bible according to his human nature. Jesus is able to die because a human nature can die. And so, in dying in his human nature, we can say the Son of God died because of the union. We don't believe that his divine nature died. It can't. But the human nature he assumed to himself, that he took to himself, that is part and parcel to who he is, died. And so we can say the Son of God died. Yeah, we're deep here, and we need to be. Where else are you going to go if someone came up to you and told you that? We go to our creeds, we go to our confessions, because they're explaining God's Word. That's probably the way I should say it. I don't want to elevate the creeds and confessions above God's Word. We go to God's Word, but the creeds and confessions are that tool that help us explain it, help us understand it. And if we didn't have that, we would question our faith. Is this nonsensical? Well, no, it's not. It's true. This is God's Word, and it can be explained, and it is explained. Two natures of God are not confused. They're not altered. They're not mixed. They're not divided. They are joined together in the one individual, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And again, I understand. We hear this, and we might think, well, how does that help me today? I don't know that I can provide that simple application that knowing the two natures of Christ in that way helps you practically live in a certain way today. But what I can say is the best and biggest application of this text is this is your whole faith. This is how it works. This is how salvation was accomplished through these ways. You see what the Belgian Confession is trying to show? At these three points, the person of the Son is inseparably united and connected with the human nature. What we mean by that is that when Jesus took a human nature to himself, he didn't take it up temporarily. The Son of God has forever assumed a human nature. He will never let it go. He will always be our mediator. He is always our federal head and he is always our true human king. Human king. With a body who will reign because he forever assumed that nature inseparably which does not not push away his divinity but it keeps them both intact together. The Belgic is also trying to show that the two natures are united in one single person. We don't have Two, we don't have a mixture. They all come together in Jesus Christ himself. And third, the Belgic is trying to show that each nature retains its own distinct properties because if you start messing with the natures, you mess with God himself. You cannot do that. It was indeed the Son of God who himself assumed this nature, and the divine attributes stay as they were. This was clearly taught, again, here's your history lesson, we'll continue with that, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And I'm I'm seeing everyone writing all the councils down, I'm actually not. Why isn't everyone writing all the councils down? It's okay, that's all right. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 taught this and gave these clear distinctions. That the Son of God was acknowledged to be fully God and fully man, where there was no confusion of the nature, alteration of the nature, division of the nature, separation of the natures. Each nature remains intact, but united in the person of Jesus Christ. All right. There's all the particulars. There's the history. And now our final point. Why is that important? Why does that matter? Well, we've already been talking about it. It matters because this is the details of our faith. It matters because without this we lose our faith. It matters because only a human is capable of paying for sins. And it matters because only the divine is able to bear it. You need them both. and So Jesus was fully man. And thus a reasonable substitute. A correct substitute. Because he is just as human as we are. You sitting in the pews... Christ has the same human nature without sin that we all do. He is human. And so he is able to stand in for us, and yet he's divine, and then able to bear the weight of sin of the world. There was only one being able to do this, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself. There's no one else who could take our nature, assume it, and pay for our sins. No one and nothing. It was only he that could have done this. and He did it. That's why it matters. Galatians 4.4 shows why it matters. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we would receive adoption as sons. Why does it matter? Because this is what adoption itself hinges on. Adoption is a long process. There are many forms that need to be filled out. It costs a lot. The finances are high. It takes a long time. There are a lot of particulars, and we have that even today to adopt. It isn't an easy process. Well, the same is true of our own adoption. Here are the particulars of our adoption the natures, the assuming human nature, the incarnation, all these things are particulars to bring about our own adoption. That's why Timothy is able to say, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Where I want to end today is on a Great description of our Lord and Savior. Revelation 1, verses 12 to 19. This is what Revelation 1 says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes... and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What's so profound, not the only thing, but one of the things so profound here. This is a man speaking. Yes, his appearance is altered. He's glorified. His human nature has been glorified. But this is, as the text said, he saw, one, he saw one like a son of man. This is that glorified vision, and yet this man in all of this splendor is still a man. He's still one like the son of man, and he says, Fear not, I am the first, and I'm the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys Of death and Hades. Why does the fact that he's a man matter? He's our mediator. Look at the power in his hands. He holds the power, the keys of death and Hades. Out of his mouth comes a sword. His eyes are like flaming lights. His feet are like strong and bright bronze this is this imagery that John tries to give in revelation what is he describing we don't know until we truly see the glorified son of god himself and yet he is our representative bearing our nature forevermore to be that head that's who you go to in prayer that's who sits beside Christ, beside god's own side interceding for us he this this powerful mediator who adopted us and saves us. You see, that's the fuss of Christ's two natures. That's why it matters. It is our salvation itself. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to praise you for your great plan. We praise you for what you instituted and did, and we praise you, Lord Jesus, for what we see, for the image of a one like the Son of Man, one bearing our nature and yet glorified, one who has achieved salvation for us, one who is fully God, fully man. And in that complex and wondrous mystery, we are able to, to say it with clarity though our finite minds cannot grasp all those particulars. But we praise you for your word, which is the foundation of what we believe, which comes forth, gives us our true faith. Lord, we pray that you would be near to us and guide us through your spirit. Be with us as we depart this evening, and may we have that image of you with with what we just read in our minds and hearts of our Savior in heaven who holds the keys of death and Hades, who loves us and has become one of us. We pray this in your name.